History Lecture 93, Rabbi Glywise. So we left last time on a uh, kind of a shocker, this controversy to tour the Jewish world apart, and particularly the rabbinic leadership in this, in this stellar period of, of uh, major names, all of whom remain major names to, for us today, whose who's, uh, who's, uh, Torah we learn uh, regularly. So um, there were understandable problems. And this, this rascal by the name of Shabtai Tzvi made such problems for generations and generations, he couldn't trust anybody. And um, even though history judges them all favorably, in the end, but the uh, damage that was caused at the time is unmistakable. It's, we, we, you know, I mentioned the story, and the story is going to linger today too. We're not done with it as we continue. We, we, we um, you know, when there's a nuclear ex- explosion, so you still there's the fallout that continually affects uh, the people, and, and, and we're going to be the fallout is really felt all the way till the modern day, as we as we emphasized. So. Um, some say that the rabbinic leader, the perceived Gadol Hador, in this period was a figure by the name of Rav Yaakov Yoshua Falk, who's often referred to by his magnum opus, his great sefer, the Pnei Yoshua, who the Pnei Yoshua being one of the great works on Shas. In fact, uh, how great a work was it? Um, the Chassam Sofer est- estimates as follows, from the time of the Chidushe Harashpa, from the time that the Rashba wrote his own Chidushim, from the time it was printed, no safer on Shas, on our, on our Holy Gemara, was as great as the Pnei Yeshua. And indeed, till today, it's definitive. He was the Rav in Frankfurt, in Germany. So there's still our great Jews coming out of Germany. Uh, he is, um, he effectively took the leadership position in the crusade, in the campaign against Rabionos and Ibishets. On some level, Rav Yaakov Emden, despite his stature, was perhaps seen as too much uh, in it, too, too immersed in the center of the controversy to be seen as an objective leader. So the Pnei Yoshua really took up the cause and felt he was fighting the, you know, for, the, for the integrity of the Torah itself. And um, that was his role. But of course, he did much more uh, the uh, Chassam Sofer also praises his work. He says that he, had a, he has a, a gift, a knack, for writing each word exactly as he means it, without any guzma, without any exaggeration. Hard to do that. Um, the Chida visited him, and the Chida remarked, I was zochet to be mekabel pnei hashchina, playing, playing on the words, to receive the face of the Shekhinah, so he received the Pnei of Yoshua, right? The Pnei Yoshua, of course, being his name, and he saw that he's, he was there for a few days, he writes. Uh, this is the days uh, of some of the great legends of a uh, uh, great, great post scheme. The Shaigis Aryeh is alive during this period as well, slightly younger than the Pnei Yoshua, his name of Aryeh, Aryeh Leib Gunsberg. He lived in Minsk and Metz. Um, his, uh, let's say, one claim to fame is he uh, gives us the derivation of how Birkus Taira is indeed Deiraisa. Brachos are usually, with the exception of Birkus Amazon, um, Durabanon, but this is another exception, the fact that we have Birkus Taira. And um, he's alive during all the, these, 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 uh, these, these very trying days. 
as is uh, the great note of Yehuda, Rabbi Cheskel Lando of Prague, who's uh, younger, his, his dates are 1713 to 1793. The note of Yehuda counts among, he's, he's counted among the descendants of Rashi, which again means he dates back to the house of David. He gets involved with, within the um, controversy between Yaakov Emden and Rabbi Yonasadavishetz, he also sides against Rivionis and Ibishitz, uh, but because he tries to make peace between the various factions, he's accused of being also a follower of Shabtai Tzvi. Meaning that that's how that's how tricky it was to be alive in this period. Is um, you 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 were lucky if you could stay neutral, but if you didn't, even if you were trying to make peace, you'd be uh, tarred and feathered too in the process. And um, it was. Not an easy time to be alive. He was the Rav in a couple different places, but made most memorably in Prague. This is already uh, this is already uh, over a hundred years after the Maharal of Prague. He was a Rav, a Rav in Prague. He had a great yeshiva there. In, um, his students included the Chaye Adam. Um, for anybody with historical consciousness, you can start to trace more of a direct line between Rishonim, Achronim, and the later Achronim. The Chai Adam was a predecessor to the Mishnah Burah. That was the nature of the work. So Nodi Behud is very much, you know, the next, the next link in the chain as we, tra- as we trace all of this. Uh, the Nodi Behuda was um, very outspoken. He, there was a new movement afoot that we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about called Hasidus. And he was, uh, he was one of the early critics of this new movement. He actually, uh, he fiercely attacked them, as we'll see. He also was, a, was one of the major heroic opponents to Moses Mendelssohn and the movement that he would spawn, which we think of as the Enlightenment, the secular, secular revolution within the Jewish world. And the Nota Behuda was one of the great um, warriors on behalf of the Torah against all of the reformers. Uh, and the entire, what's, what was considered then the culture that came out of Berlin. I don't know what your pictures of Germany, of the different facets of Germany, but one of, one of them that should be in your mind is that Germany was very much on the cutting edge in society in general, since Germany was the home of the Protestant Reformation. It was very much the cutting edge of culture in the Western world, in the, in the secular decadent sense of the term culture. And Jews were therefore uh, often very assimilated in, in Germany. And so the, the term, the Berlin culture, would come to signify and, and, and represent much of, much of what was um, in this new uh, enlightened generation. The Nodi Yehuda has a few classics. He writes a book, the Tzlach, on, uh, on the Gemara. He has another commentary on the Shulchan Aruch called the Gul Mervava. It's interesting that he's known most famously for his collection of Shailas and Tshuvas, the Shut Noda Yehuda based in a Pasuk. Uh, are you, have you heard the name before? Noda Yehuda? Okay. He's a big deal. He comes up all the time. Uh, and a, a, few, a few colorful ways that I'll try to share, I'll share right now, but of course they don't do a complete uh, justice to who the, who the individual was. Um, you know what Shutim are? I've mentioned before Shutim, Shilas and Shuvas. It's a whole genre of literature that we have that really brings a lot of Jewish history to life because you see real people asking their own personal questions with um, piske halacha that are tailored to the individual. That we mentioned this before, that where you look things up in the codified works of halacha and you get a, you get a generic halacha, but when you ask a live posik, he takes you, 
as an individual into consideration, and sometimes a psak for you would be different for uh, a psak for me. <coughs> Some of the noted Yehudas. How is it useful? It's entirely useful because Torah is meant to be lived by me now, wherever I am, wh- wherever I am, whenever I am. And therefore, since the art of living a Torah life is the best, as best I can approximate, I want to do in my life Ratzon Hashem. What is Ratzon Hashem is sometimes unclear. I don't know exactly in every scenario what Hashem wants from me. So when I ask Shilas, I get probably as close as I can possibly get to doing the right thing. Now, a lot of them, have, a lot of them are Shilas. Why would someone else do Shilas? What? Why would someone else do Oh, because it brings to light, and you learn so much through it. I see how the posik, the gadol, applies the halacha in this case, and it, it gives me a whole new understanding of how the halacha could work. Meaning, you, it's relevant to read the shaila and shuva from a gadol because they can take complex ideas and, for example, sometimes come up with a leniency that I never would have imagined. But in this particular set of circumstances, it was relevant. But but then it wouldn't be relevant necessarily here. Right. So it doesn't mean that I'm learning practical halacha, but I, I learn halacha begadol. I learn I learn the big the big uh, mural, the big uh, you know picture of, of, of how the halacha comes together, and it certainly informs me and makes me aware that there are lots of rooms. I mean, it, I think if you don't learn shilas and shubas, for example, it would seem to me that you would err on the side of chumrah in a lot of things in life if you didn't ask a shaila. And, and the more you read the shailas and shubas, you realize, hey, you know, this is a shaila. Maybe there is a leniency here. Or, or, or just something particular. It doesn't have to be for leniency only. So a few of the very, the, the uh, milestone piske halacha that he has, uh, there is, uh, there was a shaila about um, performing, the medical profession had evolved already by the 18th century where we find ourselves now, and um, there's a shaila about performing autopsies. What's the issue in halacha about performing autopsies, Daniel? No, the That's right, that's right, we have covenant mates. You can't just do that to a dead body. It's usra of the halacha. But, um, uh, are you, but you look at one of what if they're trying, okay, what, what, what if they're doing, uh, like, you know, they still have an idea, what are they doing autopsy just to find that? Is what is causing death? Oh, very good. So then I refer you to, let's say, have you ever heard of the note of Yehuda? That's what we're talking about right here. So I refer you to his tshuva on this subject. So what does he say? He says, he says, he says, if by doing so you could potentially discover the cause of the death or the illness and thereby prevent clear and present, it has to be clear and present danger to others. If you could do that, he permits, under very specific circumstances, an autopsy. It's a major chiddish. No, but what if he like, died and, and, and no one knows how he died and it could be from a, a, a medical disease that you don't know about? So what would be the purpose of, of doing an autopsy then? Okay. I mean, you can't tell from the exterior. Because that sounds like a different case than this. This is talking about something where you can save somebody else's life potentially. By the way, it's not 100% that you will save the person's life, but if you have a chance, he permits it. I know you're not allowed to have an autopsy, but are you allowed to, for example, um, draw a little bit of blood? Like, you know, like a blood that's just a test to see. You have to have a very good reason. Even that's a bizion, even that's desecrating the dead. Injecting it back in, but like. What would be the purpose? You're still causing some kind of damage, and you wouldn't do it unless there's a good reason to. We wouldn't do that either. All right. If somebody is a martyr, is 
to discover the cause of murder, usually yeah, not. No, because our our way of pursuing justice with regards to murdered murdered people, like most justice, is involves witnesses. If there are no witnesses, it really doesn't matter if we can assess why he died or how he died or when he died, like they do today. Today, in the in the secular system. They take all kinds of other uh, material as evidence, and then they, 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 would, they would go accordingly. But we, most crimes of murder, unless, and certainly if you don't have witnesses, would simply go unjudged in human court, and a Kaddish Baruch would take, uh, take care of the murderer. In the term, in the law, general minimum, the maximums to it, like, are they allowed to take a saliva DNA sample? That's an interesting question. I don't know the answer. Anything that would be perceived as a design, I don't know why taking saliva would be, but I can see why puncturing, right, I can see why puncturing the body could be a design. There's already, there's there's a tort prohibition against a child doing that to his parents, so clearly it's understood as a negative thing. Taking a hair, a piece of saliva, I can see is not a problem. Obviously the problem with that is somehow denigrating the dead person. He has another tshuva. Uh, this is even more famous. It's, if you ever want to explore the topic of hunting, According to Jewish law, is it permitted to hunt? The answer is it's not, at least nowhere in our classic sources, nowhere in the Tanakh, nowhere in Chazal, is there a prohibition against going hunting. I'm not talking about for food. Obviously, that's permitted since the days after the Mabu were allowed to eat meat. Um, actually, before the flood, uh, we actually are also allowed to eat meat. When, well, how, could, how could Adam Arishan have eaten meat? Weren't we all uh, herbivorous? I'm contradicting something I said earlier this year, no, but the Gemara Sanhedrin is clear that, about no, this. Right. That's correct. That's Tosfos says that in, in the Gemara Sanhedrin. If the animal simply dropped dead, there were no laws of shechita. You could eat dead. The problem was eating an, a, a, eating a limb from a live animal. But if the animal was simply dead and just died on its own without without being shechted, Adamration could eat it. Alternately, the Medrash says that um, from the Shemaim, the angels actually brought Adam meat. But um, that is not a relevant halacha for most of us. That's a good question too. Miracle meat. What? That's not so clear. What's that? Right, that doesn't mean that Adam didn't have it. Uh, he might have uh, kept it, but he didn't have an obligate on it. I thought it was vegetarian. I know, so did I until I said the Tosfos. I mean, nowadays. Tosfos yeah. says we did eat meat when there was a carcass that died. What we're I not allowed to do is go and kill an animal and then eat the meat. I mean, nowadays, are there laws of shikita when an animal dies from old age? What's that? Man, with age, like a cow, dies from old age. Yes, we can't eat it. You'd have to have shek, you have to shek the animal to eat it. Anyway, getting a little off topic, the Nod of Yehuda is one of the defining um, chubas of all times on the law of, on, on, the, on the issue of hunting, which is not explicitly prohibited, but... Um, Isn't the whole point of Shkita, because of Eber Benachai and cause animals that's, I would say it's the whole point of Shkita. That is so, the whole point of Shkita. That's the whole point of Shkita. So... Part of Shrita is Xerus There's more. You're sliding us into another discussion that I don't really want to have right now. I want to get back to hunting. Um, the uh, where he talks about the hunting is the meat of who 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 do we associate with hunting? Asaph. Asaph is the is the, is the quintess, quintessence of hunting, the hunter, and that's everything that Yaakov is not. And so and so for a Jew to partake of this as a sport, as something for recreation. Again, not talking about somebody who's just killing animals. It's shechting animals in a kosher way to be able to consume the meat, but just as, as such, as hunting, that the Nodi Huda says is usr. Nodi Huda has another chuva where he talks about putting an upper limit 
on expenditures on simchas. Because it's not just, even though we get that impression from modern day extravagance, the way people live their lives and, and have, have, have ex excessive simchas, um, but that's not an entirely modern issue. Even in the days back in Prague in the North Yehuda in the 18th century, apparently they were a little bit too, uh, they, they, they uh, it, it were a little too extravagant, and so he put an upper limit. And back in these days, you have to appreciate this, the Jewish communities were organized enough that he could do this and it was effective. And if you somehow violated it, let's say you were a rich person and you wanted to go all out on your daughter's right. wedding, so you would be ostracized. They had, the, they had among other things, they could, put, they could put you in cherem, which is a topic that came up earlier today. They could, put, they could excommunicate the family. Nowadays, even though in theory there are supposed to be upper limits on these kinds of celebrations, but practically speaking, who's going to enforce it? What kind of penalties can they can they uh, can they can they level at you? Um, not so many, unless you belong to a tight community. Like, for example, many Hasidim in the world today could potentially. Um, I mean, I know of a story where the where uh, the Ger Rebbe Hasidic Gur, uh, the Ger Rebbe uh, puts has such an upper limit, and one of his one of his balabatim had uh, had said, you know, Rebbe, I know that you don't want people to spend more than a certain amount on a wedding, but you know I'm a little bit different since I underwrite so many of our institutions. Uh, I'd like to spend a little bit more. And the Gary Rebbe said, that's fine, but just tell me, what will you do when you find your new uh, court? What will you, how will you find your new Rebbe? And so on, it, it clearly indicating that if you go, if you violate my terms, then you, you're, you're welcome to leave. Uh, <clears throat> so in, in, in the Gary Rebbe could say this, um, in t today's Hefker society, not everybody's capable of doing this. The Nota Behuda could also say such a thing. Yeah? Arizona hunting uh, could be sort of dangerous. You, uh, and for that reason, if, as long as you don't hunt, if you're hunting for pay, it's a bit different. But if you're just hunting for sport? For sport. He, he addresses hunting for sport. It's not a Jewish, not a, it's, it's barbaric. It's not a Jewish mode of life. Um, there was a discussion, I don't know if you remember one of the names, I've thrown out a lot of great names of Achronim, Rishonim and Achronim, and one of them was the Prisha and the Drisha, who has a commentary, that's a commentary on the, uh, on the tour, so the, his name is, he's an earlier Rabbi Yeshua Falk, not to be confused with Pnei Yeshua, so his wife was a great lady, famous woman by the name of Bella, who actually, um, she survived her husband after her husband died and made Aliyah, and actually is buried near the top of Harazesim. Uh, very interesting figure. In any case, she had a, an opinion in halacha, Bella, that women should say licht benchen on yontif davening before lighting the candles. Uh, usually we say the bracha, the women say the bracha afterwards, but she held that they should, she said that they, they should say it afterwards, which is different than Shabbos. Shabbos, we usually, we, they, they say the bracha afterwards. Um, and the note of Yehuda cites her and upholds the halacha, says that's the correct halacha. So she's the source of halacha, which is really unusual. Uh, not everybody agrees, and an earlier tshuva, the Magin Abraham, didn't, didn't agree with this, and he actually cites her and seems to make fun a little bit. He says, uh, the halacha does not follow the Rebetzin, the Pesach of the Rebetzin. There, is, there was an incidence, you know, unless you think that the, the days were very easy, and that the note of Yehuda went without opposition, these are the early, early days of the Haskalah, of the secular enlightenment. And uh, in one story, there was a wealthy family of Kohanim. And the son of this family got a good shidduch. Uh, after huge effort, he became engaged 
to a very uh, prestigious, well-off divorcee. What's wrong with this picture? Why can't he do that? He's a Kohen. A Kohen is prohibited from the Torah to marry a divorced woman. But this man finally got this, landed this great shidduch, and she's wealthy and so on, and so this family is determined that he's going to get married. And um, the father approached the Nodim Yehuda and said, you're going to be our Masada Kedushin because you're the great Rav in Prague, and we would have nobody else preside at, you know, at my son's wedding. And uh, that was the way they were, right? They wanted to make sure that he got the best of the best. And the Nodim Yehuda, of course, said, no. I'm not going to preside, I mean, it's a mockery of the Torah, I'm not going to preside at such a, a fiasco of a, of, of, a, of, a, of a ceremony. And the, uh, the rich man would not take no for an answer, and after a long argument, he shouted at the note of Yehuda, you will have no choice but to conduct my son's marriage. A few days later, a huge procession of carriages come rolling in, in front of the note of Yehuda's home, and the um, emissary of the Empress Maria Theresa of the Austro-Hungarian Empire appears himself and uh, <clears throat> says, comes to the rabbi and says that um, we, uh, the, the Empress herself now is insisting that you preside at the wedding of this Cohen and his son. And um, the note of Yehuda said to the messenger that he would certainly fulfill the request of the empress. And everybody looked at him after the, after the messenger went. They said, how can you do that? And the note of Yehuda said, it's fine. I'll do exactly what the empress asked for. So now the word is out. And of course, the, the, not only is the, are the family of Kohanim very, very happy, they have their the rav and they have their wedding, um, but the word goes out and, and the early maskilim who are very anti-rabbinic get very excited, ha, the note of Yehuda himself is gonna be forced to violate the Torah and they wanna see this. So the word gets out and thousands of people from all over come flocking to Prague for this, for this uh, major event, for this wedding. And during the ceremony, the Rebbe, the note of Yehuda, Rebbe Cheskalando, takes out the ring and he gives it to the groom and the groom was obviously somebody not well-versed in Torah, something of an Amhara, so he needed guidance every step of the way, and he needed to repeat, you know, what does a groom say at the chuppah as he places the ring on the, on, on the kala's finger? Yes. Really? No, no. Hare at mikudeshes li betabazu. No? You are betrothed to me with this ring according to the laws of Moshe, right? That's what we say. Okay, you'll know this one day, sooner than you realize, you'll, you'll be taking out a ring and doing much the same. So he had to repeat this for the groom, and the nobody would repeat it as follows. Behold, behold, you are betrothed to me, you are betrothed to me with this ring, with this ring, according to the laws of, according to the laws of, Empress Maria Teresa. Empress Maria Teresa. You are wed. Did you catch that? Yes. Clever solution to a difficult problem. All the note of Yehuda did was perform a civil marriage. He said, because the Empress Maria Tracy insisted that I perform this marriage, so I did. And then they asked him afterwards, they said, but wait, isn't the Nusach according to the laws of Moshe and the Torah? And he said, well, no, of course not. This is not according, to, this is against the laws of Moshe and the Torah, so I couldn't say those words. So indeed, they were not married. Um, and then when they were, I'm assuming they were, they consummated their marriage. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. 
but they were going to do that anyway. So that's not something that the Nodavi Huda obviously was going to weigh in on, but he certainly wasn't going to make a mockery of the Torah. So if they had a kid, would it be a uh, No, the kid would be a challah. Since a Kohen marries a woman unfit for him, who's not roly, what? They, I mean, again, if a child, the result of that is a woman who's not fit, of a woman who's not fit, it, it, the child is a challah. These are the days in the 1700s that we find that the Yushalmi would start to have its own uh, renaissance and would be increasingly studied. Not that it was neglected, and if you learn Rishonim, you, we find in Rishonim that you know they were definitely learning the Yerushalmi, not as much as the Bavli, but it was there. But it emerges. And now, just like we have a, because with the printing press, we have a formal text of the Bavli with classic Mepharshim, mostly Rishonim, but the Yerushalmi doesn't really have so many commentaries on it. So now, some of the great commentaries that adorn the face, the page of the Yerushalmi, are emerging in the 1700s. Um, the major commentaries are called the Pnei Moshe, who's Rav Moshe Margolios from Lithuania. He was actually one of the teachers of the Vilna Gaon. And another uh, contemporary of his, the Korban Haeda, was written by Rav David Hirsch Frankel of Germany. <coughs> you all remember the story of Shabtai Tzvi? Okay. We can't forget it so quickly. Well, it gonna, it's going to come back to haunt us in a in a in a tangible form. Shabtai Tzvi, we know, um, converted to Islam and perishes in the 1670s. Um, Yaakov Frank was born in 1726 and will emerge as a as a force not quite a century after Shabtai Tzvi. But when he emerges, he calls himself a reincarnation, in Kabbalistic terms, a Gilgul of David Melech and Shabtai Tzvi. Well, he said it, and so it was. But in, in Kabbalah, is there, in Gilgul, is there a double new reincarnation? Yeah, sure, several times. That's actually... Absolutely. And not only can be one person, but uh, a, pers- a person, a person, the Shama can come back as an inanimate object too, or as an that, animal. Yeah. Right? So certainly multiple or people. Like yeah, yeah. All, all possibilities in the, scheme of, in the scheme of things. So you have to realize, one of the things you have to do as we're learning history is realize so many of these strands, these loose strands, these personalities that we're meeting, these issues in history are happening simultaneously. As I'm describing all of these events, I'm describing the, the conflict between Rav Yaakov Emden and Rav Yonas and Ibishetz, the all, all of Sabbatianism, uh, and, and the, and the, uh, the uh, aftermath of, of Shabtai Tzvi, Yaakov Frank being a part of that, the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, and what we're going to see soon enough, we're going to start it today, the, um, the breakout, the big revolution to shake up the Jewish world in the, in the 1700s is, of course, Hasidus. The revolution of Hasidus, all of this is happening simultaneously. When I describe each of these little chapters as discrete units, sometimes you lose that global perspective. So Yaakov Frank is uh, certainly from a, a family that follows Shabtai Tzvi. He emerges in Podolia with his new religion in 1755. They call it, after him, Frankism. He incorporates, this is novel, even Shabtai Tzvi didn't stoop this low. It's based on Tyra, and it's also based on Christianity. I mean, we saw that, certainly unmistakably, a lot of what was going on with Shabtai Tzvi had, had clear antecedents in Christian practice, but now Yaakov Frank is unapologetic. 
He embraces Yashka. He also has no problem admitting publicly that he was an Amharitz. He really didn't know much Torah. But that doesn't stop him from claiming that he was a, a messianic figure. Of course, the rabbinic establishment in response to Yaakov Frank puts him into Cherem. But we've already learned once, twice, burned three times that the Cherem now is, is decreasingly effective. Uh, his major, they, they, they single out what were his major crimes. His, what he was, he's accused of embracing Yoshka. He embraced the Enlightenment and he had a practice that sounds a lot like Shabtai Tzvi. He had practices what he called Tahara through Averos. Meaning in public, he, commit, he committed acts of pritzus, of immodesty, uh, flagrantly. Didn't, didn't, and, 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 and that was part of his mystique. Uh, probably the most famous event in Yaakov Frank's life was two years later, 1757. He rages a major public disputation, a debate with rabbis in Lemberg in Poland. And um, guess how the bishop, after he hears the two different sides presented, the bishop, the Christian bishop, does he side with the rabbis or with Yaakov Frank? Well, what do you guess? Frank being, of course, more sympathetic to the Christians, Frank wins. And um, in response, the bishop orders a thousand copies of the Talmud to be dragged through the streets and publicly burned. If you're starting to feel that history is beating you over the head with a bludgeon and the same events just keep happening, just imagine what it was like to be alive and enduring these experiences. Uh, there's, just, there's just no let up. And wherever we are, it seems like the same thing, sometimes more intensively, follow us. Yaakov Frank remains influential throughout his life. Even when he's in prison for 13 years, he continues to practice. And when he dies, he has a charismatic daughter by the name of Chava, and she keeps the crusade going uh, long after his death. And one hears about Frankis. It's another, it's another development until they also kind of phase out. <clears throat> but, but while they were around, they were certainly destructive. Um, the next figure that we're going to try to paint the scene, the background to this period, this next figure you may not know personally, although we're learning <coughs> in a yeshiva with two of his descendants. Um, his name is Sar Shalom Sharabi. And I was on a tiul, one of our first tiulim last year, and I turned to Joe Sharabi, and I said, are you related, do you know? And he actually didn't know, and I made him go check with his family, and he's a direct descendant, and they, they didn't know. <coughs> so this is the Rishash. Um, I should tell you, because people get these too conf uh, confused, understandably, there are two famous Rishashes, Rishash, Rav Sar Shalom Sharabi, who I'm about to tell you about, um, there's a second Rishash who comes later. He's 19th century. Um, he's a 19th, 19th century Talmud uh, Chacham from Lithuania who writes in. Here, here it is. Let's turn to it. Here's the Rishash. In the back of our Gemara, um, one of the reasons why he got his Perush published in the standard Vilna Shas is because he, he was close with the publishers of the Vilna Shas. Uh, and it turned out that that was a big schus for Claudius Joe because it's fantastic and informative, and he'll often fill in gaps, some questions that nobody else up until the 19th century seemed to comment on, he does. So that's a separate Rishash. Um, this Rishash, Rishar Shalom Sharabi, is a Yemenite rabbi. Have you heard of him, Daniel? 
the Rishash. In fact, he's one of the, if not the most prominent of the of the Gedolim to come from Yemen. He's Shurabi, you say? Yeah, Sar- like the Rishash, Sarjalov Shurabi. And he's most likely a Shami, not Balabi. That's certainly true. He's Shami in a major way, as you're about to hear. There are no Balabi rabbis, unfortunately. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So um, he was uh, born in Sanaa. And he was a Makubal. He learned, he learned the Arizal. He was a master of the Arizal's Kabbalah. He makes Aliyah. Listen to this. Um, a rich Muslim. He was a big Rav in Sana'a in Yemen. And a rich Muslim woman tried to seduce him. And um, she could not succeed. He was too strong. And he makes a nether. In the middle of her uh, attack on him, he makes a nether that if that he gets out of this one unscathed spiritually, he will move to Eretz HaKodesh. And he does and he does. And he comes to Eretz Yisrael. <coughs> he becomes the Rosh Yeshiva of the great Yeshiva in those days in Yerushalayim. is called the Beit El Yeshiva. He is a contemporary of the... No, 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 no. No, we don't have the Beit El Yeshiva. Not, certainly not in this manifestation. It was a great Sephardi Yeshiva. Um, we're going to see, we're going to meet one of his colleagues uh, who is there, a slightly younger colleague by the name of Chaim Yosef David uh, Azulai, who we know as the Chido, whose kever we stood by last week. So, um, the, the Rishash, one of his claims to fame is he wrote one of the first commentaries um, on the Arizal. And he has a major Sidur called the Sidur Kavanot that's still used today by um, Kabbalists. He also has, there's a book out called the Minhagei Rishash, the, the Customs of the Rishash, which uh, provides halachos and minhagim for, like you say, Daniel, the Shami community, which is the dominant Yemenite community till today. And, and, and these are all major um, sources. He's buried not far from the Orachim Akadosh, near the bottom of Harazesim as well. Uh, Harazesim, I mean, how many figures are just today I've mentioned? Uh, Harazesim is a place to visit to go to Kibre Tzadikim. What's that? Yes. Yeah. It, the Chidah was actually descended from Moroccan emigrants. Uh, who had left Spain after the Almohad Revolution? Remember, 1148. Who, who are the uh, in 1148? Who, who, did the, who fled the Almohads then? Two great figures that we met in 1148 in Spain: the Rambam and you're good, and the Ibn Ezra, right? So in the same uh, in the same uh, group of refugees, the ancestors of the Chidah fled from Morocco when the Almohads got to Morocco. Remember the, the Rambam's family came to Fez and then the Almohads came there too? <coughs> so the Chidah's family fled and came to Eretz Yisrael and they've been in Eretz Yisrael since. That was a common What was that? That was the common theme. Yeah, clearly. Fleeing, fleeing. That's what, that, was, that, was what we, that was the story of our history. Uh, his mother was Ashkenazi and um, he himself was very much between the two different worlds. He was somebody, one of these great figures that we meet, who had what we would call virtual memory, photographic memory. He read Sfarim and remembered everything. Uh, one of his fortes, one of his emphases, was the work, all the works of the Hasidic Ashkenaz, uh, the, the great Bali Tosfos, the, the Rebuda Chassid, and others. He learned by the Oral Chaim Akadosh, we, we met last week, he was also contemporary of the Rishash. 
1755, the same year that Yaakov Frank burst out in Europe, so the Chidah was elected as the official Shadar of the Jews in the Holy Land. Who remembers what a Shadar was? Shadar stands for Shlichei the Rabbanan, the rabbinic messengers, who they were the ones who were entrusted with supporting uh, or raising the money, going around the world to raise the money to support the holy Jewish communities in and around Eretz Israel. Because they didn't have much of a parnasa, they didn't have much, much uh, means to subsist on in Eretz Yisrael. And the system was the Shadar, who was usually a big rav, would leave his home. I mentioned this by his kever. They would give their wives a get al tanai. Does that mean anything to anybody? Yeah, it's, uh, okay. it's like okay. a conditional divorce thing. Where if I disappear, which is a real live possibility, I could really disappear, you won't be stuck. You won't become a... An, uh, no, an aguna. An aguna is the term. Meaning an aguna is a woman whose husband may or may not be alive, so she can't get remarried ever. And this way she had a retroactive get or get out tonight, and if he doesn't reappear, she can get remarried. And then even if he does reappear, it's considered as if they were divorced. So she's, she's okay. So uh, that was the practice because it was extremely dangerous. They were beset by pirates, and the world was hardly uh, Jew-friendly. Uh, and they would come back and they would divvy out the money, uh, whatever, whatever money they managed to raise, and usually you wanted somebody prominent, somebody who uh, would be well-received all around the world um, and would do an effective job. He traveled around the world. He otherwise lived in Hebron. That was his base. When we last saw Hebron, it was the base of Shabtai Tzvi supporters. Chida was not a supporter of Shabtai Tzvi. Uh, because he traveled so widely, he had access to almost all the major libraries of the world. And he clearly, much like we're going to see a few years later after the Chidar, we're going to see the Gildagon doing this even more so, he clearly just consumed the books. He, uh, and then he turned around and wrote uh, his own books, about 70 all told, um, on every topic under the sun, Halacha and Medrash, he has a work trying to square all the chron chronological inconsistencies of history, so he's helpful for us, for our purposes. Um, I've mentioned the Chidah many times because he has something to say about everybody. He's that kind of comprehensive uh, figure. Um, we owe him, we know, we owe a lot to the Chidah. For example, the Nusach that we say on Rosh Hashanah in Tashlich, the Chidah put together, it's mostly his based on the Levush. He will settle in Europe, in Italy, after his second trip and dies there. And I mentioned this too, that uh, there's a legend that may be true, seems to be, seems to be well known, that um, when they reinter his remains from Italy and they bring him to Harmanuchos outside of Jerusalem, um, the Hebra Kedisha found that his body was, not only was his body intact, but his beard was still moist. Uh, it's from, from the Tahara. <clears throat> when the Hebra Kedisha does a Tahara, they clean the body, and the beard still had moisture, reflecting a certain uh, perfection in his in Tidkus. Yeah? You said that when we were there. And we, I, did say, I said most of this when we were there, yeah. And can you imagine, this is, these are the times, can you imagine going back to the 1700s? Last week also, I mean, these are all contemporary, they were all alive during the period of the Ramchal too, the Ramchal's here, uh, this is the time, a few more, few more names before we get to the Hasidic Revolution. Um, this is the time that a, a new, great, popular, understandably popular work called the Me'am Loez. The Me'am Loez 
uh, suddenly emerges. Anybody familiar? Oh, you're gonna love the Mayam Louise. Yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. Kishma. I, I, a lot of the I'm learning Miguel Esther in the morning. Okay. Mayam Louise is a commentary on Miguel Esther. Mayam Louise is a commentary on the Tanakh. Wait, he definitely yeah. has a commentary on Miguel Esther. Well, the Tanakh. Oh, on, on Miguel Esther, correct. Yeah, yeah. Not, not Gemara Miguel. Correct, yeah, of course he has yeah, an yeah, Esther. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, and right, absolutely. And and this is the Mayam Louise. The Mayam Louise is a compository of um, Midrashim yeah. and I mean, different Chazals, but lots of Mefarshim and sometimes obscure uh, quotations that you wouldn't find elsewhere. Um, it was it was a project really that was begun by Rav Yaakov Kuli, who we mentioned as as was a descendant of the Nimuka Yosef, um, who was in he was in Turkey, uh, and he started the project in 1730. Others would continue it, meaning it wasn't just Rav Kuli who who completed it, but he was he was the initiator of this project. Uh, it was written initially in Ladino, in the language of Ladino, and the goal which it succeeded spectacularly in doing was to make the works of Tanakh accessible to the common person. People often, maybe unfairly, associate <laughs> the Mayam Ways, like back in, when everybody learned in yeshivas, which you know, not everybody was talented, so the Mayam Ways was often seen as, ooh, that's for the weaker students, because it's more fun and entertaining. But that's unfair, because Mayam Ways, I think, is relevant to everybody. I mean, it's a great, Collection of, of greatest hits of, of some of, of some fantastic works um, of midrashim and, and and perushim. It's not just for Balabatim. It would dominate all around, especially the Mediterranean basin, where uh, you know in Turkey. He ha he has one. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I have a question on, on the language Ladino. Um, Ladino, yeah. What uh, what was the writing style? Was it like uh, a Samaritan uh, Samaritan language? It was in Hebrew kind of letters, or I don't know. I don't know, what, you asked what the characters were originally, I don't know, and I'm sure there's an answer to that, and I don't have it. It probably is known, because it's a, I mean, 1730 already is not dipping too far in the past. So you probably, all of that is probably uh, ascertainable. Um, he has one comment that I mentioned in Parshish Chayisara. He describes, of course, the Mars Machpelah. And then, almost like he's um, working for the Shadarim, for the Shlichei Durabanan, he breaks from form, you're reading a perush, after all, on Chumash, and suddenly it sounds like you're reading a fundraiser's manual because he breaks from form and he, he, he tells his reader, by the way, there's a struggling Jewish community living in Hebron and they're the custodians over the holy graves of Adam and Chava and Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov and Sarah and Rivka and Leah. And, and he admonishes the reader, go support them. Go out and write a very generous check and present it to, well, he doesn't say the Chidah, uh, but all those Jews who go around collecting for the Holy Land because they're there for you. Right, they're your emissaries taking care of the holy sites on behalf of all of Klal Yisrael, uh, writes the Me'am Lues as an uh, interest, interesting, not an unexpected kind of a perush. Uh, this is just something that I mentioned because my history is eclectic and I want to paint the overall view of the times. I'm not going to go into this in great depth, but has anybody heard a mention of something called the Get of Cleves? Cleves, Cleve pronounced, yeah, uh, spelled Cleves, uh, not to be confused with Cleveland. The, um, during the years 1766 and 1767, there was a whole famous story and it became one of the most discussed stories in all hal halachic literature. It's a wild story that I don't want to get too much into, but a groom gave his wife 
he, something was up with him and his family, and something was up with her and her family, he gave her a get, a bill of divorce, that was uh, given by a certain Beistein, but ultimately questioned, and when it was brought to the Frankfurt, Frankfurt being a major Jewish community, the Beistein in Frankfurt, remember in Frankfurt, that was where the Pnei Yeshua uh, lived, so it was brought to the, the, the Frankfurt Beistein, they rejected it. They said this get is not is not valid, and therefore the couple are still married. It became it was so controversial. Is it a real get? Is it not a real get? The question was was the groom was the was the chassan in his right mind when he wrote it, and uh, it became such a cause celebre, such an international uh, event. Almost everybody it became a who's who's list uh, who was alive at the time weighed in with their opinions. So Rav Yaakov Emden and the Nova Yehuda. And virtually, I mean, it's almost all the major post scheme that I've been mentioning now had their opinions. Almost everybody supported the original get against the Frankfurt Beitin that rejected it. So, of course, it's not just theoretical. Are, is this couple married or not married? Uh, suddenly, suddenly became a major issue. Eventually, it didn't matter because the couple, I mean, they sounded like lunatics, but they, the couple remarried. And at the remarriage, uh, it was decided in deference to the Frankfurt Bastion, they got married without brachos, because maybe they're brachos levatal, because maybe they're really married all along. Uh, and the groom said, what's the nusach? The second time we're talking weddings today, he says, with this ring, the groom said to her, you're still married to me. The only time in history that such a nusach was recited in, those, in that particular order. Just to give you a sense of how big the Get of Cleves was, Rav Yisrael Salanter, a later gadol from the 19th century, the founder of the Muslim movement, wrote a tshuva, wrote, actually wrote 37 tshuvos on the halakhic ramifications of, of the Get of Cleves. Just on the subject alone. He had that much to write say about it. It was such a stimulating uh, affair. It, these are the days of the Hafla, Rav Pinchas Haritz is, is, writes a commentary on, on, on the Gemara. Uh, he was a Rav in Frankfurt as well, as well as a follower of the Magid of Mezhritz, even though we don't associate him with the Hasidish movement as much, per se. He himself, the Hafla, wrote a tshuva to validate the Get of Cleves. And then, as legend had it, because these, uh, many, many of these stories are subject to legend, um, as he was writing a tshuva to validate the Get, um, the legend says that he spilled his ink bottle over all of his paper before it could be published. Uh, so it never, it never came to be. Um, he also was one of the critic, uh, early critics of the Enlightenment and of Moses, Moses Mendelssohn. Uh, Mendelssohn wrote a chomesh, wrote his own perush on the chomesh, if you can call it a perush. And, um, and, and the hafla, Rapin Chasaretz, was among those who approved the burning, the public burning of the book in Vilna in 1782. So um, I, I'm consciously doing this. I'm not going to talk about the Haskalah just yet. I'm going to talk about now the Hasidic Revolution. And um, we're gonna, that's, gonna spend, that we're, that's gonna take some time because it involves some of the major players of all of history, including the Vilnagon and, uh, and many of the Hasidic leaders. And um, then we're gonna come back and revisit the Haskalah, but keep in mind it's all happening simultaneously and arguably it's influencing all these developments are, are sort of overlapping and influencing one another. So keep that, keep that in mind. The, uh, 
there's a figure who doesn't really belong to the discussion of the Hasidic movement, but he's an interesting precursor to what's to come. He's unique. We don't see anybody quite like him in history. His name is Avram ben Avraham. Potosky, uh, he was a guy named Avram ben Avraham, because you can imagine that eventually he converted. Um, he started life as part of a royal family from Polish nobility. When he was a young man, man he and his friend, Zaremba, another, another non-Jew, went to go to Paris, because they did that kind of stuff back in the day. They do it today, too. Uh, and they connected with an elderly Jew in Paris who taught Tanakh, and they went to Shiurim and got mesmerized, because Torah is mesmerizing, and they heard it, they heard the wisdom, and they couldn't get enough of it. And um, the end of the story is Abraham converts. He's so enamored of Tyra, he wants to understand everything. He converts, he comes back to Vilna, and in Vilna he pursues learning with the great Gaon, with the, with the, Vil, with the Vilna Gaon. Uh, and the Polish nobility won't hear of it because he's, such a, he's the highest profile individual, non-Jew, I mean, in the Christian world, for a Christian to kind of fall from the ranks and to join the, the, uh, the uh, reviled Jewish community was the ultimate desecration in Christian eyes. And so he was threatened, and then, uh, and then the, the, the threats became very live, and, he was getting, and, and they said, you have, to, you have to come back to the Christian, to the church, and he refused. And so then they said, we're going to burn you at the stake. And he decided, I'll go, if that's what it takes, but I'm not going to renounce Hashem, and I'm not going to renounce his Tyra. And um, he was sentenced to death. The Vilnagon told him that the bracha that you say when you're dying on Kaddish Hashem is Mikadesh Shimcha Barabim. Sanctify Hashem's name in public. He said, if you say this bracha, make sure that somebody out in the audience answers Amen. Problem with that, of course, at a auto de fe, at the at the the, the burning of the heretic, the uh, the church didn't allow Jews, and to attend as a Jew was actually fraud. Uh, you'd risk your life to do that. So, um, the Vilna's in Vilna, the Roman Catholic Church on May twenty third, seventeen forty nine, arranged for the burning. A Jew by the name of Lizer Ziskis, who didn't have a beard and therefore could pass as a non-Jew, entered it at a great personal risk. And when uh, the time came, Avram ben Avram said his bracha, and Lazar was there, and he said, Amen. He was able to, to fulfill the, the, the request of the Gra. No, he escaped. He got away. The, um, after Avram ben Avram died, the Vilna Gon said that the spiritual nature of the world changed. That's how much one individual's righteous acts can impact the world around him. He said, among other practical effects, is um, now no longer is Tuma, is, is, is Tuma so potent in the morning, you know we have to wash Negolasser. And the Gra held from this point on that a person could potentially walk Daladamos without washing his hands. As long as you're in a roof, and many people rely on this till today, they go to the bathroom instead of keeping a clea bowl uh, by their bed. Um, he said because the world is not as potently, um, let's say, conducive to Tuma since since he did this Kiddush Hashem, uh, and the, the world has changed. The other um, footnote on the story: you remember that Avram and Avram went to uh, Paris with a friend, Zaremba. 
Well, the end of the story by Zaremba, Zaremba um, would go back. He didn't convert initially. He goes back to Poland. His, he has a wife and child, a non-Jews all. They, they go to Amsterdam, and they all formally convert to Judaism. And eventually they settle in Eretz Israel and become part of uh, the Jewish people. So uh, there, there's, some, there's, some, there's some legacy to this, to this story. Okay, uh, now I'm going to introduce something that we're certainly not going to finish today, but it's, it's, it's a huge topic that changes all of history. Give it, Daniel, you with me? Okay, this is a big one. Yeah, this is Hasidus. Now, the, the way to understand Hasidus, we're talking about a major self-conscious revolution. The Baal Shem Tov, the Magid, Rav Yaakov Yosef, and all of the original architects of this new movement recognized, and they were absolutely very, very upfront about it, they were not hiding anything. They were revolutionaries. They wanted to change the status quo that they felt was flawed. So I, I say all this because sometimes people say, oh, well, isn't that, uh, you know, isn't that somehow a critique? If you call it a revolution, aren't you putting them down? Because, you know, in, let's say in the secular world, revolutions are good things. Like, wow, you're part of the revolution. That's great. Um, you know, it, by us, in Tyra, we're a conservative, by definition, small c, small kc. We're conservative people. We are all about the preservation of Tyra. Revolutions by us look very suspicious and usually are. So the fact that you have this group that continues to, that on the one hand claims to be a voice or the voice of Torah tradition, at the same time said, yeah, we're gonna change everything now too. Well, how do they do that? How can they do that? Uh, I'm gonna try not to, I'm gonna try to condense it all and try not to uh, candy coat either. Uh, it's tricky and controversial and it will cause one of the great rifts in the Jewish people that last till today. Uh, the enmity is not nearly as strong as it was in the first couple generations, but uh, the differences, the ideological differences, are, some of them at least are, are, st are still there. Um, now, keep in mind that much of what we keep saying as we, as we occasionally take a step back in history and consider where we're holding um, still pertains right now. The exile still, as much as ever, feels endless. We're now about, we're now a century after Tach Betat, but the persecutions and the book burnings and the public, the public, uh, the auto de fe and the Inquisition is still around, and uh, nothing is abating, and the Jews are not coming back to Eretz Israel in a large number. Mashiach apparently did not come, and being burnt by Shabtai Tzvi and Yaakov Frank and all of the, the continued underground movements of these false messiahs um, is still very much on people's minds. The Jews from the outside are suffering anti-Semitism. From the inside, there's all this internal strife. There's arguments, as we saw, uh, all of which is very much in the background. Um, there's disillusionment with the rabbinate. There's a growing feeling of disenfranchisement. What do I mean by that? I mean that you're a simple Jew, and since this takes place predominantly in Eastern Europe, I'm thinking of Poland, and, and to maybe a slightly lesser degree, Russia and Hungary, but not much less. Those, those areas, Hungary being, of course, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, not just Hungary of today, as we know it. But, um, but this central eastern part of Europe, let me, I'll finish the sentence that you're on, Arya. Um, if you're a simple Jew in the village, in Galicia, in the Ukraine, I don't know where, in Hungary, let's say you didn't know how to learn as well as some of the, some of the top scholars of the day. So, but you were a Yerei Shemayim, you loved the Shem, you loved his Torah, but you didn't always feel that you were part of things. 
you felt that the world was maybe a little bit elitist and you wanted access to it, you didn't always find it. So that's also part, there's a deep spiritual alienation. And this is just happening at the turn of events in history where alternatives are starting to open up for the Jews. Uh, it, it's around this time that we're going to see the first Jews are invited to attend non-Jewish universities where the walls of the shtetl are just about to, they, maybe they're not quite falling down, but their cracks opening up. And so the outside world is, is, is calling maybe more in the western part of Europe than the eastern part of Europe. But all of these are very much in people's minds, and they're hungry, and they're looking for something. And whereas in the west, the revolution expresses itself, manifests itself in terms of assimilation and enlightenment, in the east, it almost takes the opposite direction. It manifests itself in going deeper into serving of Hashem. Hasidus was very much about uh, shaking out the carpet, but um, trying to reinforce people's Yerashamayim. At, at heart, that's what the, the Baal Shem Tov was, was aiming for. It's a totally different kind of revolution. Are you what were you going to say? Is that at all connected? A little louder for me? Is, is that at all connected to the Ottoman Empire? No, different, different geography. Ottoman Empire is south in the area that we think of as Turkey and then the Middle East today. Yeah. Um, remember, this is these are the days. We're now in the 1700s. These are the days of revolution all around the world, from the American to the French Revolution. Eventually, we're going to get we're around the corner from the Industrial Revolution, as we keep saying, the Enlightenment, the Russian Revolution is coming up. Um, Jews are not immune, and um, and the religious devotion of this particular revolution is going to be infectious. Uh, let's introduce the Baal Shem Tov. His full name is Rabbi Yisrael Ben Eliezer. His dates are 1698 to 1760. He's considered by everybody as the founder of Hasidus. He was from the Ukraine, from Okopi, Ukraine. Uh, he writes about, he says about himself, he doesn't write much. We don't have many writings. We have mostly his two, pri his two primary <coughs> disciples and many, many legends, some of which question, some of which contradict one another or not always, uh, you know, depending on which source you get it from, other sources contradict them. Um, he, by most accounts, he says about himself that he was not a distinguished Talmud Chacham. Uh, he emphasizes his, his gift in tefillah more than in learning Torah. Doesn't mean he was an Amharitz. He knew a lot, but he said that was not where his strengths uh, lay. The term Baal Shem, he was not the only one. A Baal Shem refers to anybody who writes cameos. Kamea, you remember that Rav Yonasan Ibishitz was a Baal Shem. He wrote Kameos, and that was how Rav Yaakov Emden initially discovered what he wrote and accused him of following Shabtai Tzvi. So as somebody who could write a Kamea, you know, I mean, our world is so spiritually alienated and removed from this. Maybe if you're part of the Sephardi world, you, get, you have a little bit more spirituality in this form, but you know, back in the day, if you were sick, you would approach a Baal Shem and he would write a Kamea, specific combination of different um, psuki and gematrias, and you would um, wear it around your neck. And it was understood that that might help you get healthy again. It has spiritual power on some level. So that's a Baal Shem was somebody you approached if your daughter couldn't get a shidduch, if you had hard times with parnasa, all kinds of, all kinds of issues out there in the world. Um, but the name Baal Shem Tov will become historically associated with Rabbi Yisrael. Uh, we have many, many legends of his miraculous works. Uh, although beyond the miraculous works and the many, many legends, I'm going to share a few of them with you. 
Um, we actually don't know very much about his life. What was his, what, what we know is a little bit uh, hazy, but I'm going to try to share the basics. When he was a young man, he was part of a group called the um, Tzadikim Nistarim, the Hidden Righteous Men. Their job was to teach children who were otherwise wayward kids, whose parents couldn't uh, care for them properly, and they drew them in. And I guess you consider it kind of like a Kabbalistic youth group. Uh, initially, even though he was clearly somebody of, of uh, stature and importance, he hid that from the world and presented himself as a simpleton, as nobody, nobody special. He learned secretly at night, but by day nobody, nobody recognized him as, as, as important. In fact, his brother-in-law was a Talmud Chacham, who, uh, when the Baal Shem Tov got married initially, the brother-in-law was opposed to it, and he told his daughter, no, no, you can't get married, and then after they were married, he encouraged her to get divorced from this terrible Am Haaretz. Uh, only later did the uh, Baal Shem Tov, when he revealed himself, he revealed himself first to his wife, and then to the world, uh, did the world recognize what a special soul he was. That was it when he was 36 years old. He moved to his final... Uh, uh, home place and resting place to uh, Mezhevich, which uh, and it was there that he attracted a much larger following. He is married. He has a daughter named Udel and a son named Svi Hirsch. This is important. Why do I mention? I mean, usually you notice I'm not going into so many of the personal details of the building, but the Baal Shem Tov is such a celebrated figure, and his personality will generate so much. <coughs> In the future, for example, it's from his daughter that Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav will, dis will, will, will descend, so it's, it's important to kind of trace uh, the various um, key players and his children will play a role in the, in the new movement. Um, while he's alive, he's a semi-controversial figure, but not, not at any major point. It's really only after he dies that we start to hear Gedolim, and I mentioned like the note of Yehuda and Rabbi Yaakov Emden, start to become much more vocal in their criticism of this new movement. And there becomes an open antagonism when there's a real concern, wait a minute, this is another instance of Shabtai Tzvi coming around the corner, that's what Hasidus looked like. Um, so during his life, actually the jury's sort of out, what was the reception? Not so clear. It's more the stuff of clouded legends. Uh, we know, but we do. We have a couple little pieces. We know that the Chidah refers to him in positive words. The Chidah has words of praise for him. Uh, he actually considers the Baal Shem Tov to be mainstream. Among other things, the Baal Shem Tov was open in his opposition to Yaakov Frank. He was some. Today, I was giving you this complex background of all these different dynamics, and you came in late, uh, of what's going on now during the same period. Yaakov Frank is the latest iteration of Shabtai Tzvi. He's another false messiah who claims he's a reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi. So as all this is happening, the Baal Shem Tov joins the good guys. He's on the team that says, no, no, that's trade. So in theory, wait a minute, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but then the Baal Shem Tov also runs into some controversy. If you're getting the picture, the picture that should be emerging, these are incredibly fractious times. That sometimes the enemy of my enemy is really my enemy too. And, and people are, are, are increasingly in their own different camps. Uh, sectarianism increases. <clears throat> what is the main idea? 
the new movement, their main idea, is based on a controversial interpretation of what the Arizal taught. The Arizal himself, we know from the Rav Chaim Vital, but there are a lot of different versions of what the Arizal taught. And I'm going to take a complex idea and try to render it in clear terms in the last few minutes of our class. The idea is that the whole universe, uh, mind and matter, is a manifestation of Kadesh Baruch. Everything comes from Hashem. Um, what's going to be tricky, pay attention as we learn Chassidus. I sort of said this when I gave a shir on Chabad a couple weeks ago, is that a lot of it is, is to the classic Jewish mind, great and fine and <coughs> normative Judaism. And you're going to hear ideas that seem to fit in whatever ideas that we, we, we had, we have of, uh, of what the Torah teaches. Some of it will maybe be questionable and will be a chiddish. And that's, it's that gray area that's so tricky that sometimes uh, pushes the envelope. So, so far, Kaddish Baruch Hu is imminent in every possible manifestation, mind and matter. This idea of divine tzimtzum that we talked about here, we talked about the Ariz Kabbalah, the Hashem, as it were, contracts himself in creating the world. Remember this? Okay. So this divine tzimtzum, uh, which tzimtzum kipshuto, and its simple understanding means that Hashem is transcendent. And not involved in the, in, in not, not imminent in the same way in this world. That's what they refer to as Tzimtzum Kipshuto. Um, when they refer to Tzimtzum Shalo Kipshuto, not Kipshuto, it means that in fact Hashem didn't contract himself at all. He's imminent, he's everywhere. Uh, and to be found in all reaches of the universe. Okay, this is abstract. How does this translate? From our finite perspective, what does it seem to mean? It, it seems to us that Hashem is not in the world. But if you're wise, if you're learned, if you daven stark, if you have dveikus, you can perceive a Kaddish Baruch Hu in everything. Well, the ramifications of these new ideas sometimes are radical. For example, evil is not evil, because Hashem can be found in that too. Tuma is not Tuma. Filth is not filth. Hashem is everywhere. And Avera, transgression, is not evil per se, because an Avera contains the potential for tshuva. You've got to be able to see it properly. Um, Kabbalistic ideas of the klipa, the divine sparks that are trapped inside the lower reaches of, of, of the physical world. The goal then is to go down into the physical world and to untrap that. Who's the tzaddik? The tzaddik becomes, in, in Hasidus, the tzaddik is, is huge and is elevated to, some would say, an unprecedented level of importance. Some would say even a Christian level of importance in the same way that they elevated Yashka. Uh, the tzaddik now is the figure who, knew, who now knows how to take these sparks, these nitsotsos, from the, from the klipos and elevate them. The critics of this said, wait a minute. You're going to go down into the Tuma, you're going to get lost there. You're going to get trapped there. It's going to lead towards all kinds of excess. And they recognize the ideas actually as sounding, Ilan, you used the word a, a, few, a few lessons ago, the, the essence of the ideas sounded to them a lot like Baruch, Baruch Spinoza's pantheism. Pantheism, which is to see Hashem and nature as identical. And we don't say that. We don't say Hashem is nature. We say Hashem certainly is, is the creator of the universe and he's the master of everything. 
But whether whether we say Hashem is is was contracted himself was Tzimtzum Kipshuto or Shimtzum Shalokipshuto, that becomes more subtle. Um, what we're going to have to do, Bezras Hashem, tomorrow, I, I went, I, I planted some of these ideas now initially to get you thinking. Um, we're going to, I'm not going to go into great depth, but I'm going to talk about um, how this sometimes manifests itself in practical areas and what, what the Baal Shem Tov taught and what, what other Hasidim would teach, um, including, I'll give you a couple of ideas. If you, we know it's also to look at a beautiful woman because it could lead to desire. But what if you see in that desire the potential for evil, but also the potential for a Kaddish Baruch Hu's greatness? And you see, you, if you capture that image and you stare at it and you hold it there, you could actually potentially release some divine spark that's in the beauty itself. Can you hear how this idea, maybe in the wrong hands, could be used for sin and the opposite of what the Hasidim were preaching? Who uses that even in a positive way today? What's that? Like, is that an idea even today? There, you hear some ideas like this, that you can find a Kaddish Baruch Hu in the, in the dark side, as it were. So, people look at the Well, where, that's where certainly one of, the, one, of the, one of the initial points that the Misnagin would cry foul at would, would be at, at ideas like this, where, you, where you're basically going to an area that traditional Judaism never went there. The traditional approach in, in Chazal and Halacha is, no, 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 that's usr. You can't go there at all. And now this, these new ideas, you find a Kaddish Baruch Hu dafke in the lower recesses of, of this world. And we're going to see what the role of the Rebbe is going to play. We're going to talk about the role of learning Torah uh, and, and many of the controversies that will emerge.